All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Office Hours Career Pathways for PhDs. My name is Jasmine Goodman. I am a Howard University PhD, and I am here to ask all of your burning questions to scholars who were brave enough to take the leap into the industry, or maybe they kind of told the line between academia and industry, but we'll get more into that. Our goal is to just help people with doctorates explore all the career opportunities that are available to them. And I am so so excited for our first guest. Her name is Dr. Brandel Mills Cox. She is an assistant professor at Howard University, and she is also the founder and principal of Inclusive Market Research Group. Now, just a little bit about Dr. Mills Cox. She is also a 2017 graduate of Howard University. She has a PhD in Communication Culture and Media Studies. Everyone, welcome Dr. Brandel Mills Cox to the show. Thank you. So glad to be here on the first episode. <laughs> so for everyone that's watching and that will watch the replay, Dr. Mills Cox and I met when she was just Brandale Mills at <laughs> Howard University. She was a fourth year and I was a first year and I was always just really impressed with her level of poise, um, with her ability to kind of just manage, you know, dissertating and all of that, but also her teaching responsibilities. So it's definitely a great moment for her to be here. So Dr. Mills Cox, I would love to learn more about maybe who you were going into your program, because the PhD is a degree that you don't just kind of haphazardly get into. It's a very intentional decision. Kind of tell me going into the PhD program, what were some of your ambitions or what was your vision for how you were going to use your doctorate? So I kind of stumbled upon the PhD life. I um, was living back in Houston and in between jobs and really trying to figure out what the next step was. And I had my master's degree. So somebody suggested that, you know, I just start teaching. So I started teaching at the University of Phoenix and absolutely fell in love with teaching and just the interaction with students, adult students. Um, so I started thinking maybe I should go back and get my PhD so I can do this full time. So over the next year and a half, I focused on you know studying for the GRE again, which I didn't have to take again, thank goodness, um, but just getting application materials together. Um, and really focusing on uh, preparing to be an academia. And so that's what kind of led me into graduate school. Uh, I got my master's from Howard. Um, so I was interested in getting my PhD from Howard, but I also wanted to try other universities. So I applied for a lot of Ivy League schools um, and ultimately Howard was the only acceptance I got. So I took that as a sign that that's where God wanted me to be. Um, so yeah, that's what kind of led me to um, the PhD program. And so I walked into it with the intent of, you know, being in the academy, eventually being a president of an HBCU. Uh, those dreams have shifted <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get there. But yeah, that that was the goal and the intent um, going into the program. Okay. And so that's one thing I like to talk about is the shift, because a lot of times, when you start the PhD, you have one idea, but once you're exposed to the lifestyle, the culture of academia, also, you know, just the, the politics of academia, you realize that there really are a lot of other options out there for you. So when did your career goals start to shift? Was it in your program or was it after you graduated? It was honestly a little bit of both. So in the program, I realized how little people in academia make financially. 
um, especially at HBCUs, which is again, what my goal was. Mm -hmm. um, so I started thinking about, okay, how can I leverage this experience expertise that I'm getting with this PhD, but also fund the lifestyle that I want. I know people say that money isn't everything. And as long as you are fulfilled in your job that, you know, that's all that matters. And for some people, yes, for me, not the case. Right. <laughs> um, I wanted to be able to live comfortably and to not have to stress and worry about jobs, especially after investing so much in my education and expertise. So um, in the program, you know, I started thinking about other areas of interest that I have, other things that I have experience in doing. Um, and so I guess it took about three years after graduating, two or three years after graduating to really get to the point where um, I knew kind of how to bring everything full circle. And so that's when I started my market research firm, Inclusive Market Research Group, uh, to really give voice and a platform for those voices in the communities that don't otherwise have that through the, the lens of research. And so one thing that you uh, said there that I wanted to highlight is that it took you some time after you graduated to really kind of hone in on what you wanted to do. And I think that's important because some people want to have a plan. You know, everything has to go according to this timeline, but giving yourself grace to figure out, you know, what impact do you want to have? Um, what area do you want to work in? Because it's not going to always be immediately available. So what were some resources when you were on campus at Howard? Maybe it was teachers or your dissertation chair. Who were you able to tap into to kind of help frame your perspective on life after your defense and graduation? Um, I think a lot of that came from making connections with people in different cohorts than I um, and kind of seeing what their journeys were after graduation, um, talking to them about their experiences, what they liked about maybe being in academia or being on the practical side um, and kind of seeing what the best fit was for me. So when I graduated, uh, I went to Norfolk State and I was there a year. Um, and I just realized that that university just wasn't a good fit for me long term. And so I shifted and uh, moved to New Mexico and worked at a community college there, which a lot of people were like, oh my goodness, you're going to a community college. That's just gonna be horrible for your career. But it was a great opportunity for me to reset and to really think about you know, what the next step was. And it still gave me the opportunity to teach. I was still in the classroom, but I also had this space to um, work, go back in the public relations field, which is where I came from before the, the PhD program. And, being able to kind of do a little bit of everything and <laughs> blend the income and have multiple streams of income doing all the things that I loved and enjoyed doing. Right. So now knowing what you know now, what do you wish you would have known as you were matriculating through your PhD program? That's a really good question. I think probably the biggest takeaway is that it's not a linear journey. Um, and kind of to the point that you made before, giving yourself grace. Um, I'm still in the place where I'm giving myself grace. I'm in this role now and I realize that I might look up two, three years from now and I might feel like it's not a good fit and that's absolutely okay. You, you're not stuck in any of these roles or positions, especially with the flexibility that having a PhD uh, allows you and gives you. And so let's talk about that. So I want to transition now to a section that we call nuts and bolts. So I want to get into just really 
we talk about, you know, what you did, but now we really want to learn more about how you did it. So as you were leaving Howard and you were applying for jobs, was it just was it only tenure track positions? Were you also applying for industry roles at the same time? What was your process like there? At the time, it was only academic positions. I, I, I was still focused on academia and that's what I wanted to do, um, which is why that first year out of the program working at Norfolk State was a great eye opening opportunity for me because I got to see, you know, what a an academic position is like. I got to see the politics and all of that and everything that goes with the tenure process and um, how it can really kind of take a toll on you if you don't have a good good balance and a, a good way to kind of manage everything. Um, so definitely academic track, all uh, academic positions. I don't think all of them were tenure track. I was just trying to get a, a job at that time. <laughs> um, and so luckily uh, I did get a tenure track position at an HBCU, which was the ultimate goal. So that was absolutely a blessing. And like I said, a good learning opportunity for me. And so once you decided that you were going to shift to an industry role, how did you communicate your skill set that you you were able to develop with the Ph.D. onto your resume and to a potential employer? What was that process like? You know, that took a little bit of refining. It took me having conversations with colleagues about, you know, what are some skills that you know I have from this Ph.D. program? that applied to the work that you do and really being intentional about the language I used on my resume, uh, about how I describe my experience in my cover letter and how uh, I'm able to you know, leverage my knowledge in theory and application and be able to bring that into a workforce to make the team more functional and to make sure that our communication outreach plans uh, reach our intended audience. So really trying to find that common thread between academia and the practical side and being able to articulate that not only in my resume and CV, but when I'm having conversations and interviews and when I'm meeting people, because some people it's a disconnect, right? They think academics that we're just researchers and you know we don't know anything about the real world, but given my previous experience, I actually do. So it was a great opportunity just for me to bring in that research and that academic background to a more practical setting. So when you were in conversation or specifically at the time when you were interviewing for industry positions, what were some specific things or like language that you used to communicate the value of a PhD in a place where, like you said, a lot of times people just they just think that all we do is read books and write papers when there is a lot of applicability and transferability. So what were some things, if you can recall, that you used to really kind of drive home the value of what you bring to the table? So my first industry job outside of after getting my Ph.D., I was a media specialist for the U.S. Census Bureau. And if you're familiar with the census process, um, oftentimes communities of color are undercounted. Um, and there's kind of a disconnect in um, getting those communities engaged with the census process. So with my background and my research expertise and having a PhD from an HBCU, I was able to say, hey, look, I have studied how to engage uh, communities of color through communication outreach plans and the communication tactics and methods that will resonate best with those communities. And I was really just able to kind of play that up and leverage that to say, this is the expertise that I bring specifically for this role um, that really speaks to the needs that you have in this process. 
Okay. And so with that, thinking about what you've done, well, even going back to your first role, what were some ways that you were able, or even not even your first role, but your early communications work, how were you able to incorporate the research side of things into that work? So were you pulling in like peer review publications? Were you, you know, interviewing people? What were some, maybe some uh, specific projects that you worked on that you were able to accomplish because of the research skill set that you have? I think for the most part, it was just kind of the knowledge of theories and how people operate and communicate and incorporating that in like our media outreach strategy and incorporating um, just that technical knowledge about just the communication process that a lot of people tend to take for granted in you know some of the tactics and strategies that we're using to engage certain audiences. So I would definitely say for me, it was uh, probably just that more theoretical knowledge um, in, in, in the communication field. Um, some might call it common sense, things that we know as academics that other people outside of academia may not know. Right. And I think that we can't take what we've learned for granted because we've been so entrenched in the work that when we're talking to someone that doesn't have that specific skill set or specific background, we tend to forget that they don't have that that orientation that we do to the work. So um, don't sleep on yourselves, PhDs and doctoral students. You know more than you realize and that there's value and space for it in the marketplace. Okay, so now what were some challenges you experienced in transitioning into, like, let's say a nine to five role or corporate role? (laughs) I do not like being anywhere for eight hours (laughs) and not being able to just have the freedom to do what I want. Um, And so for me, that has been the biggest thing, which is what prompted the shift kind of back into academia and more on the consulting side. Uh, I just, I can't go to work five days a week and be in the office for eight to nine hours a day. And that's just, that's not what what God wanted for me. (laughs) And that's important. That's important. Academia, you're spoiled with the schedule. You know, it's a lot of work, but nothing beats that academic calendar. I no. mean, the breaks, the holidays. I get it. Yeah. I, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, thinking about you have a consulting company, kind of tell me when your consulting work, when, tell me about when you decided that it was time to launch your consulting company. Um, Well, I was in a space where I really wanted to do research full term, full time, and I was applying for so many positions and not getting any calls back. Mm -hmm. And I know like I have this this expertise and I know that I'm passionate about this. Why aren't people calling me back? And it was just like, okay, well, you have to create your own. Um, I never wanted to be a business owner. I am kind of uh, one of those people who not that I do the minimum, but I want to live a relaxed, stress-free life. And looking at business owners, I never correlated the two. Um, So I never wanted to own or operate my own business, but I knew that this was something that I wanted to do, that I needed to do, and no one was giving me the opportunity to do so. So I kind of had to create my own space there. And what was the process for landing your first client. So how do you get people to take you seriously when you're saying, hey, I own a business and you should hire me? You know what? I'm still figuring that out. 
And I am still very much in the learning phase. And um, I think the great thing about being in, in the learning phase is that I am open to asking questions, to networking, to joining professional organizations, to learn from people who have been here, who have experienced, you know, starting a business and trying to land their first big client. Um, but for me, it has really just been just that leveraging my network, um, joining local chambers of commerce. So when I was based in New Mexico, I was really active in the black business community there. And that has led to opportunities um, and just not being afraid to, you know, talk about my business and kind of showcase the work that I'm doing. Um, but like I said, it's still a learning process. And, you know, I'm still Googling things all the time, trying to figure out, you know, what the best way to do something is. But certainly leveraging your network, professional organizations have been great for me. Um, and just doing the work. Right. Now, tell me, so let's shift and learn more about Inclusive Market Research Group. So first of all, great title, great name, <laughs> also great for SEO. Um, <laughs> so when, what services do you offer and then what types of clients do you currently work with? So offering uh, research services such as focus groups, interviews, surveys, um, and kind of in this role, I have done a variety of things. So I've conducted uh, my own research projects from beginning to end, um, but I've also been brought on by larger organizations to maybe serve as a cultural consultant for the research projects that they have underway. Um, some of my past clients have been um, nonprofit organizations, I've worked with some government entities, um, but it's more so their goal and their intent to learn more about diverse communities, specifically black communities and being able to leverage the expertise that I bring to help them get a full understanding and a comprehensive picture of um, what those experiences look like. So I am definitely have not kind of pigeonholed myself into a specific industry um, which I know sometimes people recommend that, that you have a specific target audience and you only go after those clients. Um, my target audience is more so those really looking to gain a better understanding about, you know, the black and brown experience. And I think that's great because a lot of times people think that when you're working in the industry as a Ph.D., that you're just doing research for other people. But you mentioned that you did do your own research project. So tell me more about what prompted you to, because I remember seeing it on LinkedIn, but tell me more about the project, what prompted you to do it? And then also where were you able to share that research? So um, at the advice of a mentor that I had through women in research organizations, she, she suggested that I reach out to advertising firms in the state that I was living in to try to forge that connection there. Cause oftentimes they respond to proposals and need a research component to it. So she said, you know, introduce yourself to them. You never know what can happen. And I did just that. And one of the uh, presidents of one of the firms based in New Mexico said, hey, I'm kind of thinking of this research idea about, you know, the impact of COVID-19 on consumer shopping habits, specifically in the Black and Latinx community, and also bringing in a social justice piece. So what did that social justice movement of the summer of 2020 do to consumer habits? And so we partnered on that project and we launched a national survey and we've been able to use the data that we've gotten from that survey. We've been on a few podcasts, we've written a few articles um, and finalizing the white paper on that. But 
that was a great opportunity just to kind of learn about, you know, current consumer trends, um, still aligning with my passion for, you know, social justice and the black community and in learning a little bit more there, um, but also being able to kind of use that to situate myself as an expert in this. So I've been able to present that research. I've been able to kind of refer back to that research when I'm having meetings with potential clients. And so investing in that project has really helped me um, grow and establish my firm as, as a legitimate, credible firm. And so as a note to our viewers, so you can still produce or present at conferences. It's not going to be the same type of conference presentation, <laughs> but it is still something that you can add to your CV. So now thinking about the differences between academic research and commercial research, it's almost like a kick in the face sometimes. It's like <laughs> it moves so quickly, commercial research, and we have mm -hmm. time within academia to kind of, you know, really fully develop our study and do data collection. So tell me about some of the differences that you've noticed between <laughs> academic and commercial research. So one example, I am working on a, a research project, one of my very good friends based out of Texas, and she um, is a social worker, PhD in family therapy. Um, and so we're looking at, I'm bringing my media piece in and she's looking at the family dynamics. And so we're gonna do surveys and interviews. Um, and we were talking last week and she was like the IRB. I'm like, oh my goodness, I forgot all about IRB. Like, oh, okay. So yeah, we the IRB process and just the logistics that go with conducting a research project. And like you said, it just, it becomes so time consuming. Whereas in the real world, you know, the average span is what, 12 weeks? A project yeah. has started and ended and <laughs> you are paid. <laughs> Yeah. And you're you're moving on to the next project, whereas with us, you know, we probably have to wait another month and a half, two months before our IRB packet is approved and before we can, you know, put the survey out to the community. So just in terms of the timeline, it's a lot different. Um, what, but I love the the practical side because it forces me to be more diligent. It forces me to kind of be more on top of things, which I've been able to kind of transfer back into this academic space that I'm in. No, that's awesome. I was on a project once and our turnaround time end to end was like four weeks. Yeah. And I, I was just like, how do you even, but we're not going to get back to IRB. If, like, you know, just <laughs> difference. And, you know, they don't have this, you know, formal, you know, institution that they have to have, you know, evaluate their research design. So it's definitely a different process. And so you just mentioned how you've been able to bring the commercial research experience back into academia. Tell me more about how you've been able to do that. Um, and, and that is another thing that I'm still trying to figure out. So with the project that I just mentioned, um, I am going to use my firm to sponsor the research, right? And so it, when we're writing our academic paper, we'll refer back to my firm and it'll be sec technically secondary research. And so I'm able to kind of leverage both. I'm able to get this academic publication and wow. still have my firm, you know, produce this great research. And so I can present it at academic conferences. I can present it at market research conferences. And then again, further establish myself as an expert in this space. And so being able to work smarter and not harder, um, especially being in a tenure track position where, you know, I have to publish, but I still want to do things that I love and that I'm passionate about and that I feel like has a direct impact on the communities that I love. So 
just being able to, to kind of work around and find ways to still make money, um, but still uphold that tenure, those tenure track obligations that I have. And I think that's important to looking at or being able to include, not just do research within academia, because a lot of times we do the work, it will land at a conference, at a journal, in a book chapter, and then it just kind of stops there. And yes, yeah. it's great for other scholars to build their research, but being able to take this work and put it in front of people that can actually do something with it, with it, so whether it's a nonprofit or practitioners or just everyday lay people, you still have the ability to take that that academic work and give it some legs so that can it can have some mileage. And I think that's important. So now I want to shift to learn more about a day in the life of an assistant professor <laughs> who's also a consultant, who also has, you know, just all these responsibilities. Tell me about what's an, an, an average day like for you in your current roles. You know, it's funny you asked that because I literally just sat last week and planned each of my days out. So on Mondays, like my workout time is between um, what nine and 10, shower, get ready, go to campus. And while I'm on campus, Mondays are my days to prep for class and research. I teach. Um, so my days I have blocked off to really make sure that I'm dedicating time to everything that needs dedication. And I'm on Thursday and this week has been very productive. So I'm proud of me and my little schedule. <laughs> um, but yes, on average, you know, I wake up, get my daughter ready for school, drop her off. Um, I try to get to the gym at least three days out of the week. Um, and then, you know, shower and get my day started. So my day gets started usually around 10, 30, 11, which I know sounds late for people, but that is the life that I wanted. <laughs> um, but I'm really diligent in the time that I am working. Um, when my daughter is home, she usually gets home about 5, 530. I try to make a commitment to disconnect from all devices and to be with her. So I'm with her for those last three hours. Um, and then sometimes I'm working late. So when she goes down at eight, I might pull out the computer. I might grade. I might do whatever kind of last minute things need to happen. Um, but for me, it has really just been being efficient in my time, making sure I'm maximizing all the time that I do have. I don't really work late. So I get about seven, eight hours of sleep every night. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I love this. Um, but again, this is this is the life that I wanted. And I was very intentional in taking the steps to make sure that I could have the balance that I thought was just necessary for my happiness. Right. And one thing that you said, and I think that is really important and I want to highlight is that you have created your own definition of what success looks like for you. Absolutely. And I remember being in the program where it was like, there's always this need to like publish or die, publish or die. Like you have to do all of these things. And from what I can observe from you is that you are living life on your own terms. Yes, you have the PhD. Yes, you own a company. Yes, you're on the tenure track, but also balance is still something that's very important for you. Absolutely. I'm not going to let this job or any job or anything else stress me out. If I want to take a nap, I'm going to lay down and take yeah. a nap. That's going to be the, the title of this episode, Take the Nap. <laughs> we have to know how to rest because I think that mm -hmm. with the culture that we're in right now, social media will have you feel like you have to do all the things at the same time. And if you're not doing something, but it's important to rest, especially after having 
endured such a hard process with the PhD, including even just the dissertation process. Mm-hmm. That alone almost took me out. So mm-hmm. the fact that you've been able to, you know, do all of this work, you deserve to live life on your own terms oh. and not try and fit within a box that people will often try and put PhDs in. Absolutely. And I think that was probably the first thing that I realized, like, I don't have to follow the path that, you know, everyone else has, I can kind of make my own space here and still not be stressed out and still get everything that I need to get done, get done. I I will make tenure, I will have all the publications that are required for that. Um, And I'm not going to stress myself out in the process. Right. Right. That's important. So now I want to transition to learn more about just mentoring, the role of mentoring. You mentioned that you did have a mentor with women in research, which I would love to learn more about. uh, One, what organizations have you been able to look to to kind of learn and be mentored as you transition into this industry? Uh, So women in research uh, has been a great um, opportunity for me. And thank you for making that (laughs) that connection. Um, But yeah, that mentorship, uh, she was outstanding in just the the insight that she was able to provide. So she was in the industry, had worked within the industry for about 15 years and decided to start her own firm um, and has been in her own firm for probably about seven years. Um, and so she she had both perspectives and she was able to kind of give me a lot of the best practices as a new business owner. And so women in research has been a great space. Um, also in the certification, um, the minority and women business certification program. So the National Minority Supplier Diversity Council. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a part of the um, Emerging Young Entrepreneurs Program last year. And that was um, like an eight or nine month program where um, all of the entrepreneurs that were brought in, we would have sessions with business leaders and just kind of business development and professional development. And that was just a great space to just really soak in information, make connections and just learn about best business practices. Because, again, I don't have a business background, was never really interested in that space. And so. Um, Getting that perspective and that insight was invaluable for me. Um, And also uh, being a women certified organization there, especially in this time of COVID, there have been so many great online sessions that I've been able to attend just for 30 minutes, 45 minutes as my schedule permits, just to soak in some nuggets, just to really kind of get one or two best practices and takeaways to be able to apply to my business. So Really um, thinking about, you know, what professional organizations align with the work that I do and trying to leverage that and make connections within those. Okay. And what advice would you share for people who are wanting to land, let's say, a non-academic job? What are some specific things that you recommend that they do? Um, What should they be thinking about as they're considering that transition? Um, I would say consider what you really want to do. Um, Think about, you know, what that looks like, what the day to day might look like, um, and then make connections within that space. That is some great advice, again, that I got from um, plenty of mentors. Um, Reaching out via LinkedIn, you know, doing a little research to see, you know, what maybe be would be some direct reports in that position or in maybe not the the, uh, organization that you're looking in, but other organizations just to kind of get a perspective on 
what the, the track should be and what some things you should be focusing on in your application process. So really starting and just kind of doing the research, making sure that it aligns with what you want for your life um, and just go after it. And, and don't think that the PhD is something that uh, will be frowned upon. It's your responsibility to tell the story of the PhD and to, to add value to it and to explain why it makes you the best candidate for that position. So that's great. Tell the story of the PhD because it really is your own unique experience. And I've been in spaces when I'm working with my commercial clients that I've been able to bring in, you know, theory. We were talking about intersectionality and kind of how all of that feeds in. So um, one piece of advice that I remember receiving when I was at an agency was own the PhD. Mm -hmm. You have experience. Don't try to hide it. Don't. I mean, of course, you know, depending on the culture that you're in, you know, they may refer to you as doctor. They may not. But don't, you know, beat people upside the head with your degree, but definitely leverage all that you learned in that process because it wasn't for not. You know, there's still work and there's still a story that you can communicate. So what's some advice you would give for those who want to go down the tenure track? What are some things they should be thinking about? How can they make themselves attractive to hiring committees or search committees? Um, I would say really start thinking about your research um, in those last few years and how you can leverage that research into publications. Um, I know a lot of the advice I got within the program is that you have to have this very specific narrow focus of research. And um, that might be true, but that is not the path that I have chosen. <laughs> if something interests me and uh, like I said, I, I'm doing a, a, a study with my friend on, you know, the black love, black millennial love. And she's bringing in her perspective as a therapist. I'm bringing in my perspective as, you know, a media scholar. And we're comparing the two. Right. Some people might say, no, you can't do interdisciplinary studies and communication. But, you know, it's something that I want to do. And so don't limit yourself. Don't narrow yourself. Um, but also leverage that dissertation process to really um, serve as the foundation of who you are as a researcher. I have been able, thankfully, be, been able to publish my dissertation as a book, as well as get a, a peer reviewed journal out of it. So I got two publications from my dissertation. And so using that as kind of your launching pad. I know when we're done with the dissertation process, we just want to be done with the document. We don't want to look at it again. But if you think about it, it's probably one of the most perfectly written pieces of, of a manuscript that you've ever written because so many people have picked through it and given their comments and you made so many changes. So it's ready for publication. You just have to kind of sit down and package it and, and do it. That is awesome. So with the time that we have left, I would love to learn more about how people can connect with you. I want to make sure that we're promoting all of your projects. So just share how people can connect with you online. So I am on all social media platforms, my firm um, at Inclusive MRG. I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, Brandel Mills Cox. Um, in terms of future projects, so um, my firm is this will be like our project of the year. I'm work, working on um, understanding the joys of Black motherhood. So the next survey will be about the joys of Black motherhood because I feel like you know we hear, hear a lot about maternal mortality um, and that is a huge focus for Black women. Um, but there are also some good things that come with Black motherhood, right? And so I wanna look at that and, and see what that looks like. 
Um, and then maybe even bring in some media components so I can leverage that, that academic space a little bit. So that is the future project uh, in the pipeline that I'm really excited about. But yes, on all social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and like I said, LinkedIn, Brandell Mills-Cox. Well, thank you so much for joining me and us today. I have to also say thank you to my executive producer, Dr. Marianne Kwakwa. We also met on LinkedIn and we've just been kind of just trying to figure out ways that we can share our experiences because our transition into commercial research was interesting. I know you were on the receiving end of a couple phone calls. I was just trying to, you know, figure life out, but our goal is to make sure that we are just highlighting all the different ways you can leverage your PhD and to really empower people to be confident when they cross that graduation stage or when they get that last signature after their dissertation defense, that they are capable and they have the ability to go out and produce really amazing work, whether it is in the academy or within the industry. So thank you so much, Dr. Brandale Mills-Cox. And for everyone that's watching, we'll see you next time.